Before I read the classics, the classics were read to me. My mother weaned us all, my brothers and I, on Homer's twin epics, the Odyssey and the Iliad. I remember her reading them to us at night before bed, the crashing waves, the beckoning sirens, the ferocious monsters. It was all so very real. The tales, at once compelling and enlightening, transported us from the land of the waking to the realm of the dream time. The line between fiction and reality always blurred. It was an experience for which I am eternally grateful. Moreover, it was also the beginning of a lifelong relationship with the books that have shaped my life. Hi, my name is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. I believe in no small way that the classics inspire us to pursue our own humble contributions, as well as the preservation of the texts themselves and the experiences they can help to unlock for others. It is with this in mind that I set out to build Classical Wisdom, our free newsletter dedicated to all things classics-related, and our new podcast, Classical Wisdom Speaks. If you're interested in learning more about Classical Wisdom or our podcast, please visit our website, classicalwisdom.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 103, An Oligarchic Coup. Today's episode is brought to you by our new May Patreon supporters, Mooncatcher, and Jeremy Gilbert, as well as PayPal donors Tom Alston, Richard Davis, Lisa Hartman, and Sky DeBrule. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor. In addition, there is Thoag merchandise to purchase, featuring not only apparel with the podcast's logos, but as well as artwork created by independent designers. There's short sleeve t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, baseball t-shirts, hoodies, crewneck sweatshirts, tank tops, kids apparel, and even masks, all in different colors and cuts, plus phone and laptop cases, wall art tapestries, pins, stickers, magnets, notebooks, mugs, pillows, and tote bags. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. For nearly a century, Athens had been free from the dangers of civil war. But following the Sicilian disaster, several factors came together that caused political unrest in the city. For the first time since the establishment of their democracy, as men of oligarchic inclinations played on the Athenian people's disillusionment and anger, by this point, the demos began to lose confidence in their leader's ability to win the war through their own democratic institutions. And so, onto the stage stepped a coordinated action by many of Athens's oligarchically-minded political clubs called its hierae. These were not only men from the aristocracy, 
but those who were more affluent among the hoplite class as well. As we discussed in episode 88, the men of the property class and of good birth, who referred to themselves as the Cowboy Cagathoi, had largely withdrawn from Athenian politics due to the malicious and confrontational nature of the demagogues. Many of them still accepted the radical democracy, so long as they shared the economic benefits of the empire. As we have also discussed, these wealthy men essentially bankrolled Athenian democracy through a system of liturgies by funding the city's religious obligations, such as the plays and the theater and their festivals, by equipping and maintaining triremes, and so forth. But the war had placed an unprecedented financial burden on them that only continued to multiply as the time went on. The early costs came from the annual Peloponnesian invasions of Attica, which saw their estates ravaged heavily, as well as the occasional imposition of a special wartime tax called Isphora. In addition, when the Peloponnesians began to fill a navy of their own, the wealthy had to pay even more money to keep their fleet of triremes viable throughout the entire year, not just during the traditional campaigning season. However, all of these financial losses, as heavy as they might have been, were offset by the economic benefits that they accrued from their possession of extensive land holdings overseas. And these investments were protected by Athens's naval supremacy. But the begrudging acceptance of radical democracy by the upper class began to disintegrate with the Sicilian campaign, which they viewed as expensive and risky from the outset. But even more so after the Athenian demos doubled down on their mistake and sent out a second lavish relief force. Then, while they had overextended themselves in Sicily, the Demos committed an even more foolish error by attacking the Spartans and giving them a legitimate excuse to renew the war. And Sparta's permanent occupation of Decalia in Attica greatly exacerbated the financial problems of the state. The last straw, though, came with the destruction of both fleets in Sicily and the consequential revolt of their subject allies. Not only would the cost of building a new fleet fall to them, apart from the 1,000 talent emergency fund that we mentioned last episode, but the potential loss of Foros, the extra expense of subduing the Allies in revolt, and the need to maintain a continued fleet throughout the entire year against a Peloponnesian navy that, not, that now plied the waters of the eastern Aegean would impose even greater financial hardships upon the wealthy than ever before in the war. Making matters worse, though, there had been a radical drop in the number of citizens available to pay these expenses. Because of plague, war casualties, and economic drain, the number of men who could enroll in the hoplite census or above, and therefore be qualified to perform the necessary liturgies, had dropped from 25,000 at the beginning of the war to around 9,000 after the Sicilian expedition. So not only were the wealthy collectively paying more in general, there were fewer of them to share in this burden. Scholars also believe that the fortunes of many wealthy Athenian families were seriously reduced by the performance of these public services during the war. And so it was easy to see why the propertied classes would feel that there would be similar and even greater demands in the future if the status quo continued. And so they would have had strong reasons for wanting there to be a much more efficient conduct in war and foreign policy and a tighter grip on the state's finances. But this could only be accomplished by a change in the democratic constitution, 
Aristotle argues that the Athenian government technically had already changed with their earlier appointment of the pro-bouloi and that its existence and authority over the boule was an oligarchic element already in the constitution. Although scholarly opinion is divided on the question as to whether the appointment of the pro-bouloi was a first step in the establishment of an Athenian oligarchy, it is clear that the Athenians had been troubled by the glaring deficiencies of their democracy in the conduct of the war and that at the very least, they were prepared to give unprecedented power and influence to a small body of elderly citizens. But the year and a half that followed the Sicilian expedition saw the revolts of Athens' major subject allies, the operations of the Peloponnesian fleet in the eastern Aegean, and Persia's intervention on the side of the Spartans. These gave the oligarchs an opening to convince the demos to do the unthinkable, that is to transform their radical democracy into a tight oligarchy. There are two accounts of what is traditionally known as the oligarchic revolution of 411 BC. Thucydides in Book 8 and Aristotle in his Constitution of the Athenians. Although there are certain similarities in their narrative of the events, there is a major split in the description of the constitutional reforms that were passed and the timing of their introduction. Thucydides, who was writing in exile and was a contemporary of and familiar with many of the oligarchic leaders, describes the constitutional change as a swift coup by a group of conspirators, all of whom wanted an extreme oligarchy and had no intention of introducing the moderate rule of the 5,000, which followed after them. In fact, he makes no mention of the appointment of the 5,000, as he regarded their existence as totally irrelevant to the 400 in this new government at Athens. In addition, it seems that Thucydides has telescoped the events of 411 BC, and because of this, many scholars believe that Book 8, apart from being unfinished, was also left unrevised by him. There are clearly different versions of the same events in different parts of this book, which Thucydides would usually rationalize into one sequence of events. On the other hand, the account in Aristotle's Constitution of the Athenians was written about a hundred years later and uses a variety of sources, including Thucydides, but also, in all probability, the work of a 4th century BC orator named Andration, who wrote an analytic account of Attica and whose father was one of the conspirators, which may explain why this version takes a more lenient view of the oligarchs. In Aristotle's account, the reform of the constitution takes a much longer time, and they ratified two different constitutions, one for the present, the 400, and one for the future, the 5,000. Modern scholars have made many attempts to reconcile these two traditions, but the commonly held view is that Aristotle's account contains much that is fictitious and reflects the contemporary propaganda of the extreme oligarchs, for whom it was politically useful to pretend that the 5,000 had a constitutional existence. Therefore, Thucydides' account typically is to be preferred although it must be treated with more caution than his usual statement of facts, as it includes an unusually high amount of his opinions and interpretations about the motives of the conspirators, which are open to serious challenge. So with those caveats in mind, let's try and piece together the events of 411 BC using both Thucydides and Aristotle as our guides. The catalyst for a change in the government would come from an unlikely source, that being Alcibiades. As we discussed last episode, he had begun to wear out his welcome in Sparta, and so he began to plot a return to Athens, and the entry of Persia into the equation provided the springboard that he needed. Although Tissaphernes at first leaned towards Sparta 
His support began to waver following his failed negotiations with Lycus and the other advisors. Alcibiades had worked closely with Halkidius, but when the Navarch was killed, he lost important Spartan support. At about the same time, Endius's term as E4 came to an end, which removed another friend from a position of influence in Sparta, just when he needed it. Plutarch reports that by the winter of 412, 411 BC, Aegis had finally heard the rumors of Alcibiades' affair with his wife. At the same time, the most influential and ambitious of the other Spartans had begun to grow envious and tired of him. So that soon enough, Aegis was able to induce the magistrates back in Sparta to put a price on Alcibiades' head. And so orders were sent to Astyachus that he was to arrest and execute him immediately. But Alcibiades received warning of this ahead of time. And so he was able to seek refuge with Tissaphernes, becoming the latest in a long line of Greek aristocrats who took asylum in the Persian Empire following political reversals at home. On his arrival at Tissaphernes' local court at Magnesia, Alcibiades' versatility and cleverness quickly earned himself the satrap's favor. He eventually became his advisor, and with this role, he influenced the satrap into making several policy reversals meant to injure the Peloponnesian cause. Alcibiades first warned him that long-term, the Spartans would be the greater threat to a satrapy than the Athenians, and therefore, it was very dangerous for the Persians to give their full support to the Spartans and thus ensure their victory, since they, after defeating the Athenians, inevitably would renege on their treaties, as they already had twice, and would use their land and naval forces to liberate the Asiatic Greeks from the Persians once again. Therefore, Alcibiades urged Tissaphernes to reduce the payment that he was giving to the Peloponnesians and to make them irregularly so as to hinder their cause by arguing that the Athenians, whose maritime experience was more substantial than the Peloponnesians, only gave their men three obols to prevent them from becoming corrupted during the campaign and spoiling their fitness by being too well paid and then spending their excess money on exhausting indulgences. Tissaphernes received his advice well, as we mentioned last episode, and cut down Peloponnesian pay in half from one drachma to three obols a day, and even then it was paid sporadically. Alcibiades next advised Tissaphernes to bribe the captains and generals of the Peloponnesian fleet in order to gain valuable intelligence from them on their activities. This worked on all except the Syracusan general Hermocrates. We discussed his opposition at Tissaphernes last episode, Alcibiades then advised the Persian satrap that he should refuse to contribute any soldiers or supplies to the defense of Chios, as well as any other cities that had revolted or might revolt in the future from Athens. Lastly, and most importantly, he urged Tissaphernes to take a non-alignment policy in the war and to be in no hurry to bring the Persian fleet into the conflict, arguing that the longer the war dragged on, the more exhausted its combatants would become as it was in Persia's best interest to let both Athens and Sparta wear each other down first, which would then allow the Persians to more easily conquer the region. He ultimately persuaded him with the argument that Athens was a safer foe, since their power was only naval, and therefore they could only harm the coast. And therefore they could only harm the coast, whereas Spartan land power could menace Persia's interior. In addition, he convinced him that the Athenians would make better allies who would be more willing to concede sovereignty of the Asiatic Greeks over to Persia and therefore would be more suitable partners in empire. On the whole, 
Tissaphernes' subsequent actions seem to indicate that he approved of most, if not all, of these policies advocated by Alcibiades. Insofar as he gave his confidence to him and kept the Peloponnesians short of money. In particular, Thucydides says, quote, Tissaphernes gave poor support to the Peloponnesians and did not allow them to fight a sea battle, but kept saying that the Phoenician fleet would come and that they could then fight with greater superiority. And so he damaged their cause and severely weakened the efficiency of the fleet, which had been very great. And in general, he made it very clear that he was not eager to wage war. End quote. As for the Phoenician fleet, this is the first we hear of any plan to use it. Whether Tissaphernes ever intended to do so is not clear, but in the early winter of 412, 411 BC at least, no such fleet was ready for use. According to Thucydides, Alcibiades also gave similar advice to Darius, and therefore he may also have traveled at some point to Susa or Babylon to meet with him. Although Alcibiades' advice to Tissaphernes benefited the Persians, it was merely a means to an end. He wanted to injure the Spartans, who ordered his execution. But more importantly, he wished to gain enough influence with the Persians in order to leverage it for his restoration in Athens. This seemed even more possible in the wake of Lycus's quarrel with Tissaphernes over the treaty at Cnidos, and the Persian satrap was now more willing to believe him when he advised the Spartans would never give up those cities which Persia coveted. Alcibiades also was convinced that the radical democracy would never pardon him. And consequently, he believed that the establishment of an oligarchy in its place was the essential precondition that he must find a way to put into place in order to return to Athens. Therefore, over the winter, likely sometime in November of 412 BC, he also started to exchange messages with some of the officers in the Athenian fleet at Samos. However, these men did not know that Alcibiades' relationship with Tissaphernes was precarious, as each had been pursuing their own interests without the other's knowledge. But Thucydides notes that Alcibiades' ploy worked, as the Athenian officers at Samos believed him when he said that he held influence with Tissaphernes, and so they decided to send envoys from their camp to speak with him and to gather more information. As a result, a delegation of influential Athenians crossed over from Samos to the Asiatic mainland and met him at Magnesia. During this meeting, with his legendary powers of persuasion, Alcibiades went about winning over their support by offering them a threefold plan. He promised that he would secure friendship and Persian support for Athens from both Tissaphernes and Darius in return for the overthrow of Athens' current constitution. However, his help in this would only be possible if he was allowed to return home as a fellow citizen. Alcibiades apparently judged the more moderate mood of his guests, and so he used a bit of semantics here. Instead of demanding for an oligarchy, he simply requested that the pure, direct democracy in Athens no longer be retained, and left it up to these men to determine what form of government it should be replaced with. These men would have been from the wealthier classes, just like Alcibiades had been, though their response to him was split. Some wanted to side with him as a means to bring about oligarchy. Others, such as Thrasybulus, abhorred oligarchy, but if it must happen in order to secure the aid from Persia that would save Athens, he saw it as a necessary evil. Therefore, he wished for Alcibiades to be allowed to return 
even if that meant making moderate adjustments to the Athenian government that would make it less broadly democratic. Also, in the delegation was Pisander, who previously never favored oligarchy in any form, as he had a reputation for being a demagogue who had played a large part in the prosecutions of the Hermai and Eleusinian mystery scandals. Upon their return to Samos, these Athenians joined in a xenomasia, or meeting, with the other men of the hoplite class to speak on Alcibiades' proposal, which was welcomed enthusiastically by the Athenian upper-class officers who were bearing the economic brunt of the democracies' military mistakes. These men welcomed the prospect of a narrower constitution, which would allow them to have a greater share in determining foreign policy and how the finances of the state were used. Thucydides says that the majority of the forces at Samos were not happy with these conditions, though, but they accepted them begrudgingly because they were at least pleased by the thought of receiving Persian pay. Like his previous explanation of the popular enthusiasm for the Sicilian campaign, Thucydides here gives an unfair characterization of the Athenian soldiers and sailors by claiming that simple greed was their sole motive, though there were surely far more complicated feelings and considerations at hand. His use of the word oklos, which means mob, to describe the majority of the forces, perhaps indicates that this is one of the times where Thucydides' bias against the radical democracy comes to the fore, as it was just as feasible, perhaps more so, that the Athenians agreed to these conditions through fear for the safety of their city and their families, rather than their greedy desire for more money, because they were more fearful that a victorious and vengeful enemy, such as the Spartans, would treat the Athenians as they had done with Scione and Milos before. That is the total annihilation of all adult males and the enslavement of all women and children. But by agreeing with Alcibiades' proposal, they could obtain the necessary financial support that would allow them to carry on the war, win it, and ensure that their families and homes would be saved. It is also unlikely that Alcibiades really believed that he could persuade Tissaphernes to give money to Athens. But he likely felt that in the event this turned out to be false, by the time it became clear that the Persian support he had promised was illusionary, his plan for a government change and his return would already be done. At least one Athenian, though, was not tricked by Alcibiades. After addressing the military, the influential men leading the movement gathered to decide whether Alcibiades' proposal should be accepted. Everyone approved of the idea, except for Phrynichus, who completely opposed it. Phrynichus was not in the delegation that went to speak with Alcibiades at Magnesia, and he was known as a democratic demagogue with no inclination towards oligarchy. In fact, he had achieved such a successful career as a democratic politician that he eventually was voted into the position of general. His opposition to Alcibiades' plan was threefold. First, he maintained that neither Alcibiades, nor anyone else for that matter, could convince the Persian king to side with the Athenians, as their interests were ultimately in opposition, since the Persians want the restoration of their possessions, and the Athenians would not abandon their allies. Secondly, since the Athenians no longer had a naval monopoly in the Aegean and had already lost large cities to the Peloponnesians, there was no reason for the Persians to use their money in order to garner good relations. Finally, 
there had been a long history of animosity and open warfare between the Athenians and the Persians, with no such lingering memories between Persia and the Peloponnesians. In rebuttal, another unnamed man argued that perhaps if Athens replaced democracy with an oligarchy, those cities that had rebelled against them would return, as many of them had already adopted oligarchies themselves. It was asserted further that this change would also prevent other cities from moving into rebellion. Phrynichus, though, rejected this line of reasoning, that their abandonment of democracy would help preserve their empire, by arguing that none of that would come true. Because no city, quote, will want to be enslaved with either an oligarchy or a democracy, rather than to be free under whichever of these happens to exist locally, end quote. In addition, he argued that they would see themselves to be better off under the rule of a democratic power, as the upper classes would profit most from empire and are less worried about following due process. Beyond even this, though, he insisted that Alcibiades could not be trusted, as he didn't really care about any form of government for Athens, but only wanted a change in the constitution so that he could get his friends to demand that he be allowed to return. Finally, Phrynichus felt that should he return, this would cause violent civil unrest in Athens, which was the last thing that their city needed in its current circumstances, and it would no doubt bring their ruin. Phrynichus's advice, then, was to continue on their current path of autonomy and to reject the overtures of a dangerous enemy, such as Alcibiades. Even in the face of such counterarguments and Phrynichus's proposal to stay the course, the Athenian leaders were still so desperate to find some way to change their city's fortunes from its current state of crisis that the majority decided to accept Alcibiades' offer. They then appointed an embassy under Pisander to go to Athens to negotiate the return of Alcibiades and to end their current democratic system in order to win over the support of Persia. After the meeting, fearing that if restored, Alcibiades would take revenge on him for what he had said, Phrynichus conceived of a plan to try and prevent his return, and therefore to protect himself. Scholars have theorized that there may have been a long-standing enmity between the two. Regardless, Phrynichus sent a letter to the enemy, the Spartan admiral Astyochus, informing him of their new plan and of Alcibiades' role in it, and warning him that he was ruining their cause by trying to flip Tissaphernes to the Athenian side. He excused his own betrayal of Athens by saying, quote, It was pardonable to plot evil against a man who was his enemy, even to the disadvantage of the state. End quote. Phrynichus, though, was unaware that Alcibiades was no longer in the Spartan camp. So he wrongfully assumed that Astyochus, after reading the letter, would immediately arrest him, which thus would put an end to the plot. But although this wasn't the case, Astyochus still technically was under orders to kill Alcibiades. And so he couldn't afford to ignore this warning. Instead, he went up to the residence of Tissaphernes at Magnesia and communicated Phrynichus's letter to him. The satrap must have been shocked, as he surely had made no commitment to Alcibiades of any kind. Therefore, the standing of Alcibiades with Tissaphernes likely began to collapse at this point. In anger, Alcibiades responded by sending a letter against Phrynichus to the other Athenians at Samos, stating what their general had done and demanding that he should be put to death. 
Phrynichus, who had expected Astyochus to kill Alcibiades and his plot not to be exposed, in desperation wrote a second letter to the Spartan admiral. Realizing that he was likely a dead man now, unless he did something drastic, he not only reproached Astyochus for failing to keep his previous letter a secret, but then offered to betray the Athenian fleet at Samos so that the Peloponnesians could destroy it. But once again, Astyochus revealed this letter to Tissaphernes and by extension to Alcibiades. Although defeating the Athenian navy might have been remarkable for his personal ambition, it's likely that the cautious Spartan commander feared a trap from Phrynichus more. It would also seem that by this point, Astyochus had defected, or at least was on the payroll of the Persian satrap. In fact, Thucydides says that this was a reason why he did not object more strongly before against the pay not being given in full to his men. In any case, Alcibiades in response informed the officers at Samos that Phrynichus had attempted to betray them. Phrynichus, though, must have realized that Astyochus was playing him false, and so he had anticipated that Alcibiades would send such a letter. Therefore, he had set the trap that Astyochus had feared. Before the accusations could arrive, he told his men at Samos that he had received intelligence of the enemy's plan to attack their camp and that they should tend to Samos's defenses as quickly as possible. So when Alcibiades' letter arrived, it was thought that this was part of that ploy and their secret attack on Samos. So instead of doing harm to Phrynichus, Alcibiades' letter actually strengthened his position, at least for the time being and increased the people's distrust of the Athenian renegade. The whole affair also caused a breach between Tissaphernes and Alcibiades, and destroyed any chance, though slim, that he had of keeping his promises of Persian support to the Athenians. Despite Alcibiades' failure to win over Persian support, the coup to overthrow the democracy was already set in motion. In December of 412 BC, or January 411 BC, Pisander and his embassy left Samos for Athens, knowing nothing of what just happened to discredit Alcibiades. And so they still intended to go ahead with the original plan to prepare the way for an oligarchic coup, his return, and Athenian friendship with the Persians. But they couldn't just show up and expect their desire for a constitutional change to be sufficient enough to bring about the overthrow of their democracy. Therefore, other steps needed to be taken. In particular, they needed to unite the various aristocratic clubs, known as Hetaria. As we discussed in episode 88, these Hetairii, the plural, had traditionally been social organizations, usually nothing more than upper-class dining clubs, although they did help their members at the time of elections or when a lawsuit was in progress. However, they seemed to have become more politically inclined and consequently more secretive with the rise of Cleon and the demagogues. And it is within these clubs that the true supporters of oligarchy and the bitterest opponents of democracy were to be found. Apart from isolated acts, which were designed to frighten the demos, such as the mutilation of the Herms, they had previously been too disorganized to mount a serious threat against the democracy. But in the political climate following the Sicilian disaster, they were a powder keg waiting to blow. And all that was now needed was one charismatic man to light the spark. According to Thucydides, when Pisander arrived back in Athens in January 411 BC, 
He immediately approached the ecclesia with this proposal. Other evidence, though, such as Aristophanes' comedic plays, Lysistrata, and Thesmophoria Zuzai, strongly suggest that Pisander did not approach the ecclesia until March or early April. We already mentioned how it's likely that Thucydides telescoped the events. So it is reasonable to assume that Pisander used the early months of 411 BC to explain the conspirators' plans to oligarchic sympathizers in Athens in order to win over their support for his planned coup. Regardless, whenever he did speak before the Ecclesia, the message he delivered was that the very survival of Athens and their victory over Sparta were dependent on Persian help, that only Alcibiades could obtain it, so his citizenship rights must be restored, and that the democracy had to be modified in order to make all of this possible. In doing so, Pisander artfully avoided mentioning the word oligarchy, but talked in terms of modifying the democracy, adopting this language in order to deceive the demos. No matter how tactful his phrasing was, though, a number of speakers still opposed him on the question of changing the constitution and the enemies of Alcibiades cried out against his restoration. The Eumolpidae and Caracas protested on behalf of the Eleusinian Mysteries, the cause of his banishment, and called upon the gods to stop his recall. The Eumolpidae and Caracas were the only two families from which the officials that led and conducted the mystery rites at the Shrine of Eleusis could be selected. Since Alcibiades had been condemned for profaning the mysteries, they would naturally not be in favor of his recall. Although there was a great uproar, Pisander had the advantage of being known among his peers as a radical democratic politician, and therefore he was more credible to the demos than a more conservative one would have been. He exploited this advantage with a bold rhetorical ploy that concentrated on the enormity of the danger to Athens. He argued that the Peloponnesian navy was now the same size as their own. They had more allied cities on their side, and Tissaphernes was supplying them with money. But now they had the opportunity to persuade him to change sides and to change the dire circumstances in the war. He also told them that at that moment, changes to the constitution were necessary, but that once the war was won, they could then vote to undo what they did not like. He reasons that since Athens, with its empty treasury, could not afford to pay those holding public office, they should limit offices to those who needed no pay, meaning the rich. When some hecklers began to chastise him, he sniped back and asked if they had a better idea to win the war and to save their city without the return of Alcibiades and Persian money. Nobody had an answer, and so the multitude fell silent. This ultimately convinced the majority in the Ecclesia that their safety laid in no other direction. And so out of fear, and likely because they believed that their action was easily reversible, they voted in favor of Pisander's proposal that they should make the best possible arrangements with Tissaphernes and Alcibiades. Then, Pisander eliminated the potential roadblock of Phrynichus by accusing him of treason for betraying Iasus and Amorgus. Technically, the accusation was a false one, but it was understood to mean that it was he, Phrynichus, who was responsible for evading a naval battle at Miletus. Therefore, by using popular resentment at that time to achieve his goals, 
Pisander was able to persuade the Ecclesia to vote in favor of the dismissal of Phrynichus and Scyronidas from their posts as strategoi, and to send Diomedon and Leon to replace them in command of the fleet. As we mentioned last episode, these two would then lead the Athenian fleet at Rhodes. Afterwards, before leaving Athens, had he not done so already, which was more likely, Thucydides says, quote, Pisander, having approached all the clubs, urged them to unite and to organize a common policy for the overthrow of democracy. Whether he did it at this point or beforehand, he would forge them into a unified faction and task them with consolidating the power of the oligarchs while he and 10 other envoys sailed off from Athens to negotiate the best possible arrangements with Tissaphernes and Alcibiades. However, Alcibiades had promised more than he could deliver, and the commission arrived to find that Tissaphernes had no intention of making an alliance solely with the Athenians, who were the Persians' long-standing enemy. Thanks to Phrynichus and Astyochus earlier, Alcibiades had realized that his standing with the satrap was not that secure and that Tissaphernes still wished to maintain the policy of wearing down both sides. Alcibiades must have been informed of this before his audience with Pisander and his colleagues. And so at that meeting, he was fully aware that he would not be able to keep his promises. But he wished to not have his reputation sullied, so he maintained the appearance of still having the satrap's favor. In doing so, over the span of three continuous sessions, he proposed increasingly exorbitant demands to the Athenians, supposedly on Tissaphernes' behalf, in his effort to find their red line and then cross it, so that he could say that he had persuaded the Persians to support them, but that they were not willing to concede enough. His first demand was that the Athenians must hand over the whole of Ionia, when this was begrudgingly accepted, he then urged for the islands off the coast, which would have included the rich and important cities of Rhodes, Samos, Chios, and Lesbos. When there were still no objections, finally he demanded that the Persians be permitted to sail anywhere along their coast with as large of a fleet as they wished. Essentially, this meant that Athens and Persia would return to the state of affairs that existed before the Persian Wars. And this demand was the breaking point, though, as it would give control of the Aegean to the Persians and expose Greece to another invasion. By now, the envoys had grown angry at the audacity of the Persian stipulations, as given by Alcibiades. And so with this final demand, they stormed out and sailed back to Samos. Accordingly, this fiasco at the court of Tissaphernes put an end to the negotiations between the conspirators and Alcibiades as they were now fully convinced that he could not deliver on his side of the bargain without demanding exorbitantly high, seemingly ludicrous concessions from them. And so, they concluded that they had been deceived by him, and they immediately abandoned their plans to restore him to Athens. Alcibiades did succeed in one respect, though. As the Athenians never suspected that he was incapable of delivering what he had promised, but believed rather that for some reason he had chosen not to. Because of this, the myth of Alcibiades' power and influence among some prominent Athenians continued to flourish. The Athenian navy, though fewer in number, still ruled the sea, and the Spartan commander was clearly afraid to fight. Although the Spartans had begun to turn away from Tissaphernes, he still wanted both sides to wear themselves out and not for one to get an advantage over the other. 
but he did begin to fear that the hands of the desperate Spartans may soon be forced. Although the Peloponnesians had managed to levy a contribution of 32 talents from the Rhodians, this couldn't even maintain the crews of their ships for a month, much less the 80 days that they stayed there. When their funds would run out, Tissaphernes knew that the Spartans would be compelled to fight a naval battle, which they would lose, or if their sailors would desert, they would be diminished in that way as well. But most of all, he feared that the Peloponnesians would turn to ravaging Persian territory on the mainland in search of provisions and money. On the other hand, because of their shortage of money and the fact that the Athenians, through Alcibiades, were in talks with the Persians, the Spartan commander and his advisors grew increasingly anxious and at last attempted to reconcile with Tissaphernes. And for the reasons that were just stated, he was willing to receive them. The two sides negotiated a third treaty at Canis in February of 411 BC, which was almost certainly formulated this time by the king himself. Although Thucydides seems to believe that there were three different treaties between Sparta and Persia, the truth seems to be that the first two were mere drafts of treaties and were never formally accepted by both parties, which is why only the third had a formal introduction with a date and the names of the Persians involved. Regardless, like the earlier agreements, it contained a non-aggression clause between the two sides, a reference to Persian financial support for the Peloponnesians, and a commitment for them to wage war and make peace in common. But the differences in this one were crucial. Although the Persians still laid claim to sole dominion over Asia Minor, they now abandoned all claims to the European lands included in the earlier agreements which was a concession to the complaints made by Lycus. Another important element is that the treaty mentions that the Peloponnesians now had access to Persian ships. The assumption in the previous treaties was that the Spartans and their allies would do the fighting and would only receive financial support from the Persians. But now it seems the Spartans would be getting access to the Persian navy, and Tissaphernes would only be required to maintain the Peloponnesian fleet financially until these ships arrive. After that, they may stay at their own expense or receive money from the satrap, but this time as a loan that would be repaid at the end of the war, which the Spartans and Persians would now be waging together. As we will see, the Persians never brought a fleet of their own into Aegean waters during the war but its inclusion must have been a major factor in persuading Lycus and the other Spartan leaders to approve the agreement, which in actuality, besides the Persians forfeiting claims to European lands, was not substantially better than the previous one that they had denounced. Regardless, after the treaty was signed by both parties, Tissaphernes prepared to make good on his promises, or at the very least, to make it appear that he was. Meanwhile, towards the end of winter, 412-411 BC, the Athenian fortifications at Delphinium on Chios were completed, as Pederitus desperately sent off appeals for help from the forces at Rhodes to come quickly before the island would be lost. Believing that no help was on its way, he attacked the Athenian stronghold with his mercenaries and the Chians. They made an assault upon the stockade around the Athenian ships and managed to capture a few beached ones. But the Athenians then sailed out and launched a counterattack that killed many in the process, including Pederitus. With their commander dead, Kean resolved disintegrated, and they retreated back to their city. Afterwards, 
the Athenians besieged them by land and sea, even more tightly than before. And as a result, a famine began to set in. With this, the Spartan commander at Rhodes no longer could ignore their appeal, and so he readied the fleet to sail to Chios's rescue. But roughly at that same time, a rebellion broke out on Euboea. It was encouraged by the Boeotians, who with treachery took Europus in Boeotia, although it was held by an Athenian garrison. Their accomplices were some Europeans, as well as some Eretrians, who sat just across a narrow strait on the Euboean coast. Therefore, these Eretrians got the idea, too, that they wanted their city to revolt. So envoys were dispatched to Rhodes to seek help in this endeavor from the Peloponnesian fleet. Despite the fact this revolt would be more threatening to the Athenian cause, the Spartan commander chose to ignore the Eretrians' request and instead set out for Chios in March of 411 BC. On the way, he caught sight of the Athenian fleet from Halkae, sailing north back to Samos. Although the Athenians didn't attempt to engage, the Peloponnesians got spooked, and so they sped quickly to Miletus. Although it's a bit puzzling as to why the Athenians just left them sail by without engaging, since they specifically came down to Rhodes in order to fight them, the reason probably lays in the importance of Euboea. Because its possession was more vital to Athens than was Rhodes, the Athenian commanders in the Aegean must have determined that it was more prudent for them to sail to Samos at once and then to Euboea, if necessary, to defend it rather than engage the Peloponnesians. The downside of this, though, is that if they were forced to sail to Euboea, it would allow the Peloponnesians to raise new rebellions in the east, to rescue Chios, to threaten Samos and Lesbos, and to make their way to the Hellespont. Regardless, Thucydides says that this event ended the winter with the Peloponnesian fleet together back at Miletus, the Chian fleet being besieged by the Athenians at Chios, and the rest of the Athenian ships at Samos. The third treaty between Persia and Sparta included, for the first time, an agreement with Pharnabasis, the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, and it is hardly a coincidence that shortly thereafter, around, four, around April of 411 BC, the Spartans sent out an army overland from Miletus, under the command of a Spartiate named Derkilidus, to assist Pharnabasis in subduing his region. At the same time, the pressure of the Athenian siege compelled the Chians to risk a sea fight. In this endeavor, they were led by a Spartiate named Leon, who had taken over following the death of Pederitus. The Chian fleet of 36 ships put out and lined up in battle formation opposite the 32 of the Athenians, which were led by Strombachides. At the same time, the Chian army marched out in mass and took up a strong position as an extra layer of defense just in case the Athenians won. But after a tough naval battle, the Chians and their allies were able to gain a slight victory. The number of casualties or disabled ships were not recorded, but it was probably negligible. However, it was now late into the evening, so they retired to their city and the Athenians to their fort. Immediately afterwards, Derkilidus and his forces managed to arrive at the Hellespont. As a result, Abidus and Lampsacus quickly revolted against Athens. And so, upon receipt of this news, Strombachides was then forced to take to the Hellespont, the better part of the Athenian fleet, 24 ships, leaving behind only eight to guard the sea around Chios. He managed to defeat the Lampsacians, who came out against him, took the unfortified city, and recovered it. 
Then he led the fleet to Abydos, but the Abidians refused to capitulate, nor did they come out against him. Instead, they prepared their fortified city for a siege. When Strombokides' assault failed to take it, frustrated, he sailed over to the opposite coast on the Thracian Chersonese and built a fortress at Sestos, which was to be the center for their defense of the entire Hellespont. But due to the withdrawal of most of their ships from Chios, the Chian navy now held the numerical advantage around their waters. And this gave Astyaches the courage to slip past Samos and to make it to Chios. And so after coasting along with two vessels to Chios, he collected the rest of the Chian ships and sailed them back southwards to Samos. At the same time, the rest of the Peloponnesian fleet at Miletus had also sailed to Samos in order to rendezvous with the Stiaches and the Chian fleet, so that now more than 100 warships were congregated in order to challenge the Athenians for command of the sea. However, the Athenian generals refused to engage, and so frustrated, Astyachus sailed the fleet back to Miletus. Thucydides explains that the Athenian generals did not wish to fight because they had grown suspicious of one another referring to the internal conflict that had recently broken out amongst the Athenians, which divided its citizens into hostile factions and posed a serious threat to the city's current government. Therefore, the generals didn't want to risk a battle with crews whose loyalties were questionable, because the last thing that they needed was another catastrophic loss. And so, it seems that almost suddenly, the situation had completely reversed. Athens had lost the naval initiative in the war and were the ones being torn apart by civil strife. As is so often the case, the plays of Attic old comedy provide tremendous insight into the political atmosphere of Athens. And unsurprisingly, there's more of an atmosphere of crisis in the comedies produced in the later years of the war than earlier. Eupolis's Deems, commonly dated to the city Dionysia of 412 BC, does not survive intact but there are papyrus fragments which allow reconstruction. Mironides, who commanded Athenian armies in the 450s BC, but is not attested subsequently, has recently died, and on his arrival in the underworld, he reports on the desperate state of Athens. As a result, the famous Athenian leaders, Solon, Miltiades, Aristides, and Pericles, are chosen to investigate as to why this is the case and Mironides escorts them back to contemporary Athens. There, they are met perhaps by a proboulos, but this speaker is left unidentified, who cannot offer generous hospitality, and they deal with rogues of various kinds. Perhaps most reflecting of the political reality is Aristophanes' Lysistrata, in which a proboulos plays the part that normally was played by the Prytanes. Aristophanes performed his Lysistrata, the third and final of his plays that call for the end of the war, the other two being the Acarnians in peace, at the Linnea over the winter of 412-411 BC. At the time that it was produced, many Greeks in every city-state believed that the war was bringing nothing but ruin to Greece by making it susceptible to a Persian attack. Athens specifically was a city of political unrest, as Spartan armies loomed nearby and the people were outraged at their ineffective leadership in both their city's government and on the battlefield. All of this served as ammunition for Aristophanes' play, and its outspoken heroine, Lysistrata, was the conduit for his anti-war views, as he detested the war and the effect that it had on his beloved Athens. For men, 
War provided an opportunity for courage and a glorious death. But for women, it only brought decades of misery as a bereaved wife, mother, or both. Lysistrata literally means army disbander, and the play is an account of one woman's extraordinary mission to end the war by weaponizing the only thing that men on both sides truly and deeply desired, sex. This strategy, though, only inflames the battle between the sexes, and so the play is most notable for being an expose of gender relations in a male-dominated society. It was produced just two years after the Sicilian disaster, and in the same year as the Thesmophoria Zuzai, another play with a focus on gender-based issues, which we'll discuss next. Lysistrata is a remarkable protagonist for many reasons. She demonstrates a strong will and determination, knowing when to chastise and when to speak calmly. As a woman, she realizes that she has little, if any, voice in the policy-making decisions. However, she understands men, and through her resourcefulness, she is able to force them to bring the war to an end. Modern adaptations of the play are often feminist or pacifist in their aim, but the original play was neither feminist nor unreservedly pacifist. Even when they seem to demonstrate empathy with the female condition, dramatic poets in classical Athens still reinforced sexual stereotyping of women as irrational creatures in need of protection from themselves and from others. On the other hand, the play is one man's imaginative vision of an honorable end to the war at a time when no such ending was possible. And Aristophanes nowhere suggests that warfare in itself is intolerable, let alone immoral. The play opens outside the homes of Lysistrata and her friend Kalanike, with the Athenian Acropolis looming in the background. Lysistrata says, There are a lot of things about us women that sadden me, considering how men see us as rascals. To which Kalanike responds, As indeed we are. These lines set the tone for the action that follows. Women, as represented by Kalanike, are sly hedonists in need of firm guidance and direction. Lysistrata, though, is an extraordinary woman with a large sense of individual and social responsibility. She has convened a meeting of women from various Greek city-states that are at war with each other. There is no mention of how she managed this feat, but she is obviously very anxious, looking right and left. Kalanike tries to calm her, telling her that it is difficult for women to get out of the house as they have much to do. She had spent several sleepless nights thinking about the problems that face Greece. She turns to Kalanike and says, We women have the salvation of all Greece in our hands. I am going to bring it about that no man, for at least a generation, will raise a spear against another. Very soon after she confides in her friend about her concerns for the female sex, the rest of the women began to arrive, including a younger, smaller Athenian woman named Marini, and a larger, well-built Spartan woman named Lampito. Lysistrata chides them all for being late, and then poses a question that if she found a way to end the war, would they join her? When they cautiously agree, she divulges her plan that women are to renounce sexual privileges from their husbands and lovers in order to frustrate them and force them to negotiate a peace treaty. An uproar follows, and many including her friend Kalanike, begin to walk away. But Lampito agrees with her, and the others eventually fall in line. In order to guarantee their full cooperation, 
They all swear a solemn oath around a wine bowl. Lysistrata chooses the words, and Kalanike repeats them on behalf of the other women. It is a long and detailed oath in which the women formally renounce a long list of sexual pleasures, including the so-called lioness on the cheese grater, a certain sexual position. Not long after the oath is finished, a loud shout of triumph is heard from the nearby Acropolis, as the old women of Athens have seized control of it at Lysistrata's instigation. Since it is the home of the Athenian treasury, the women now controlled access to the money needed to finance the war. Lampedo goes off to spread the word of revolt to her fellow Spartans, and the other Athenian women retreat behind the barred gates of the Acropolis to await the men's inevitable response. Shortly thereafter, a chorus of old men arrive with crowbars and torches, intent on burning down the gate of the Acropolis if the women do not open up. Encumbered with heavy timbers, inconvenienced with smoke, and burdened with old age, they are still making preparations to assault the gate when a chorus of old women also arrive, bearing pitchers of water. Led by the elderly, Stratilus, the old women complain about the difficulty that they had in getting the water and getting up to the Acropolis. But they are ready for a fight in defense of their younger comrades. Stratilus turns to them and complains, What have we here? A gang of male scum, that's what. No one who had any decency or any respect for the gods would behave like this. In response, the leader of the old men spins around and threatens her. But she does not back down. And along with the other old women, they throw their pitchers of water on top of the old men, extinguishing their torches and embarrassing them with a soaking. The two leaders continue to call each other names. She calls him an old relic, and he calls her an old corpse. But then a magistrate arrives with Scythian slaves, who acted as the Athenian version of a police force. The magistrate reflects on the hysterical nature of the old women, with their devotion to wine, promiscuous sex, and exotic cults, such as to Sebasius and Adonis. But above all, he blames the old men for, for poor supervision over their women. He exclaims, Look at the way that we pander to women's vices. We positively teach them to be wicked. That's why we get this sort of conspiracy. The magistrate then lets it be known that he has come to the Acropolis to fetch silver from the state treasury in order to buy oars for the fleet. And he instructs the Scythian guards to begin levering open the gate. As a result, Lysistrata emerges from behind the door. What's the use of crowbars? It's not crowbars we need. It's intelligence and common sense. As they attempt to charge the doors, Lysistrata calls for the help of the other women. They flood out onto the stage and charge the Scythian officers, punching and kicking them. The beaten men are quickly overwhelmed, and so they pull back. When the women also withdraw inside the Acropolis, in desperation, the magistrate finally turns to Lysistrata and asks why they have chosen to bar themselves inside. She explains to him the frustrations that women feel at a time of war, when the men make stupid decisions which affect everyone, while their wives' opinions are not listened to. She drapes her headdress over him, gives him a basket of wool, and tells him that war will be a woman's business from now on. She then explains the pity that she feels for young, childless women, 
aging at home while the men are away on endless campaigns. When the magistrate points out that men also get older, she reminds him that men can marry at any age, whereas a woman has only a short time before she is considered too old. She then dresses the magistrate like a corpse for laying out, with a wreath and a headband, and advises him that he's dead. Outraged at these indignities, he storms off to report the incident to his colleagues, while Lysistrata returns inside to the Acropolis. The agon, or debate, is continued between the chorus of old men and the chorus of old women, until Lysistrata returns to the stage with some unfortunate news. The other women are desperate for sex, and they are beginning to desert on the silliest pretexts. For example, one woman says she has to go home to air her fabrics by spreading them on the bed. After rallying her comrades and restoring their discipline, Lysistrata again returns to the Acropolis to continue waiting for the men's surrender. Then, a young man named Kinesius suddenly appears. He is desperate for sex, and so he begs his wife, Nerini, to come home. Lysistrata instructs her to tease him, so Marini informs him that she can't have sex until he stops the war. He promptly agrees to these terms, and the young couple prepare for sexual relations on the spot. Marini fetches a bed, then a mattress, then a pillow, then a blanket, and then a flask of oil, exasperating her husband with these delays until finally disappointing him completely by locking herself in the Acropolis again. The chorus of old men then come back onto the stage and commiserate and threw a sad and mournful song with the young man's blue balls. Then, a Spartan herald appears with a large burden in the form of an erection that is scarcely hidden inside his tunic, and he requests to see the ruling council to arrange peace talks. The magistrate, now also sporting an enormous hard-on, laughs at their embarrassing situations and agrees that peace talks should begin. He tells him to return to Sparta and to return and to fetch envoys who have full powers to negotiate while he goes to the boule and asks for Athenian delegates. After they both leave the stage, the chorus of old women make overtures to the old men. The horny old men are quite happy to be comforted and fussed over by the old women. And so the two choruses merge, singing and dancing in unison. When the Spartan and Athenian delegates arrive, Peace talks commence, and Lysistrata introduces them all to a gorgeous young woman named Reconciliation. The delegates cannot take their eyes off of her. Then, Lysistrata scolds both sides for past errors of judgment. At one point, she says, Each of you is in the other's debt. Why don't you stop this war, this wickedness? Yes, why don't you make peace? What's in the way? The delegates briefly squabble over the peace terms. But with reconciliation before them and the burden of sexual deprivation still heavy upon them, quite literally in the form of erect penises, they quickly overcome their differences. Peace was miraculously negotiated and the war came to a glorious end as both sides gathered together on the Athenian Acropolis for a celebration. In the end, Lysistrata turns to the Spartans and says, Well, gentlemen, so it's all happily settled. Spartans, here are your wives back. Now form up everyone, man beside wife and wife beside man, and let us have a dance of thanksgiving. Another choral song follows, and after a bit of humorous dialogue between some tipsy dinner guests, 
the celebrants all return to the stage for a final round of songs. As the men and women dance together, everyone sings a merry song in praise of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and chastity, whose citadel, whose citadel provided a refuge for the women during the events of the comedy, and whose implied blessing has brought about a happy ending to the play. And with that, the play ends as the men and women run off to go have sex. Likely just a few months later, at the city Dionysia in spring of 411 BC, Aristophanes performed his second play with strong sexual themes. It is unknown how the Thesmophoria Zuzai, or the women celebrating the Thesmophoria, fared in the comedic competition. But scholars generally consider it to be one of Aristophanes' most brilliant parodies of Athenian society. The play satirizes the vanity of many of his contemporary tragic playwrights, such as Euripides and Agathon, as well as, once again, the subversive role of women in a male-dominated society. In particular, it is notable for its reversal of sexual stereotypes, where men dress as women, and the women appear to be the equal of men, particularly in their governmental imitation. However, as we mentioned earlier, tragic and comic poets in classical Athens reinforce sexual stereotyping, even when they seem to demonstrate empathy with the female condition. And women typically were considered to be irrational creatures in need of protection from themselves and from others. And so the play is not some proto-feminist work of literature. However, Aristophanes is an equal opportunity satirist, and the play also focuses on the vices of men, especially the shameless vulgarity of an ordinary Athenian, represented by the protagonist, Menesilochus, and the plight of Euripides, as the women of Athens have grown incensed at him for his betrayal of them in his plays as being mad, murderous, and sexually depraved. And so the women choose to use the festival of the Thesmophoria as an opportunity to debate a suitable choice of revenge. Dedicated to Demeter and Persephone, it was an annual celebration of fertility, both in the fields and at home, that was only for women, and therefore men weren't allowed to attend. We discuss this festival in more detail in episode 62. The play begins with Euripides and his elderly relative, Menesilochus, silently walking on stage. Euripides is visibly troubled and exclaims, Today, the women at the festival are going to kill me for insulting them. Fearful of their powers, he is seeking out a fellow tragedian, Agathon, in the hopes of persuading him to spy on them and to be his advocate at the festival, a role that would require him to go disguised as a woman. But when Agathon appears from inside the house, he is already addressed in women's attire and wearing a mask. In preparation for another play, since only men were allowed to be actors in Greek drama, they had to play the parts of women as well. After Euripides makes a plea to him, Agathon asks why he couldn't just go and do it himself. Euripides replies that he is too well-known and too old, but that Agathon is, quote, good-looking has a fair complexion, and is clean-shaven. You have a woman's voice and dainty manners. You're pretty to look at, end quote. Despite the compliments, Agathon believes that the women of Athens are jealous of him, and so he refuses to attend the festival for fear of being discovered. Luckily, Euripides' aged relative, Menesilochus, then offers to go in Agathon's place. But for him to become a convincing woman, like Agathon, a lot of work must be done. So Euripides shaves him and dresses him in her dress and wig, all of which were borrowed from Agathon. 
He then reminds Manessa Locus to make sure to use a feminine voice when he speaks. And then he finally sends him off to the festival. Scene two opens up at the Thesmophorion, whose exact location in Athens is unknown, but was a sanctuary of Demeter and the venue of the women's secret rites. As the women slowly enter, Manessa Locus mingles among the crowd. There, he discovers that the women are behaving like citizens of a democracy by conducting an assembly much as men do, with appointed officials and carefully maintained records and procedures. It is the second day of the festival, and the topic on the agenda is how to punish Euripides, who has already been unanimously found guilty. Two women, one named Mika and an unnamed Myrtle vendor, summarize their grievances against him. According to Mika, Euripides has taught men not to trust women, which has made men more vigilant, and that, in turn, makes it impossible for women to help themselves to the household stores. She says, Is there any crime he is not accused of us? Wherever there is a stage in a theater, there he is, coming out with his slanders, calling us double dealers, strumpets, boozers, cheats, gossips, bad eggs, and a curse upon mankind. Then the Myrtle vendor speaks and tells how Euripides' plays promote atheism, and this makes it difficult for her to sell her Myrtle wreaths. And so her business was ruined because of him. She complains, I tell you ladies one and all, that man ought to be punished for all he's done. He's so harsh to us. After sitting quietly, listening to various women badmouth his relative Euripides, Manessa Locus finally gets his opportunity to speak. Although he starts by claiming that he too is annoyed with Euripides, he then begins to defend the playwright by asking the women why they were so mad at him when all he has done is expose all of their tricks. Then he declares that the daily behavior of women is in fact actually far worse than Euripides has represented it. He recites in excruciating detail his own imaginary sins as a married woman, including a sexual escapade with a boyfriend and a thrist involving a laurel tree and a statue of Apollo. Claiming that all women cheat on their husbands, he says, I ask you ladies, do we do these things? Of course we do. Why be so angry with Euripides? We we suffer nothing worse than we deserve. The women become outraged and threaten to pluck and singe out his hair, but Manesilokis continues undeterred. He never let on about the woman who killed her husband with an axe or the one who gave her husband a drug that sent him mad. He then laments that there aren't women anymore like Penelope. As Manesilokis speaks, a messenger is seen approaching. He turns out to be Cleisthenes, a notoriously effeminately dressed man, who is represented in this play as the Athenian ambassador for women. Arriving breathless, he comes with the alarming news that an old man disguised as a woman is spying upon them on behalf of Euripides in order to discover their plans and to stop them. Cleisthenes agrees to help them find the culprit and suspicion immediately falls upon Manesilokis, as he was the only member of the group that nobody could identify. Manesilokis plays innocent, though, but after they remove his clothes, they obviously discover that he is a man. Cleisthenes immediately leaves to inform the boule of his violation. In a parody of a famous scene from Euripides' own play, Telephus, which is now lost, Manesilokis desperately grabs Mika's baby and threatens to kill it unless the women release him. After a closer inspection, though, 
Manessa Locust discovers that the baby is only a wineskin full of wine. Undeterred, he still threatens it with a knife. Mika, an habitual drinker of wine, pleads for its release, but since the assembly will not negotiate with him, he stabs the fake baby wineskin. Mika, though, manages to catch in a vase its precious blood, meaning its wine. At this point, the action pauses briefly for a pair of asses. While the boule is notified of the illegal presence of a man at a women-only festival, using a trick from one of Euripides' own plays, Manessa Locus writes messages on votive tablets from the temple walls and scatters them. He then sits and waits for Euripides to come and save him. The next scene begins with Manessa Locus nervously sitting at the altar that is guarded by a woman named Cretilla. Then, there follows a series of farcical scenes in which Euripides, in a desperate attempt to rescue Manessalocus, comes and goes in various disguises of characters from his plays that were performed at the city Dionysia the previous year. Naturally, all of these mad schemes fail. First, he arrives as the Spartan king Menelaus, a character from his own play Helen, to which Manessalocus responds by playing out the role of his wife. However, Cretilla does not fall for the trick, warning, Anyone who tries to take you out of here will feel the hot end of this torch. Then came a magistrate and a Scythian guard, the Athenian equivalent of a policeman. And so Euripides, dressed as Menelaus, departs, saying, Don't worry, I won't let you down, so long as I live and breathe. I've got hundreds of tricks left. Menesilochus is subsequently arrested by the Scythian guard. He requests not to be left dressed as a woman, though, so as not to give the crowd a laugh but the magistrate refuses. He is then strapped to a plank and propped up against one of the altar's columns. Euripides then appears dressed as the hero Perseus, a character from another one of his lost plays, Andromeda. In this role, he swoops heroically across the stage on a theatrical crane, frequently used by Greek playwrights to allow for a deus ex machina. But there would be no miraculous rescue of Menesilochus here, and Euripides, dressed as Perseus, departs when he sees the Scythian guard returning. At that moment, the feminine voice of Echo is heard, and the Scythian guard begins a long talk with her. But of course, Echo can only repeat the last words that she hears. Confused, the guard tries to find Echo, but he is unsuccessful. As her voice fades away, Euripides reappears for the third time, though he is still dressed as Perseus, and claiming to have the Gorgon's head, he tells the Scythian guard that Menesilochus is actually Andromeda, the child of Cepheus, and asks him to release her from her bonds so that he could carry her away to their bridal bed. This trick, though, does not work on the Scythian guard, and so Euripides leaves once again. When he reappears for the fourth time, he decides to do so as himself, and in this capacity, he quickly pleads for and negotiates a peace with the chorus of women by promising not to insult them in future plays. Although the women decline to help him release Menesilochus, who is now a prisoner of the Athenian state, they agree not to interfere with any plans that Euripides might set into motion for his escape. And so Euripides leaves and reappears for the fifth and final time. Disguised as an old lady and attended by a dancing girl and flute player, he distracts the Scythian guard long enough to set Menesilochus free when the Scythian returns and sees that his prisoner has escaped. He attempts to apprehend him and the old lady Euripides before they can get away, but he is steered in the wrong direction by the chorus and the comedy ends happily. 
Although at the beginning of the play, Euripides is mercifully made fun of as being vain. By its end, he is portrayed as a more sympathetic character who uses his wit and wisdom by acting out scenes from his own plays to save his relative from a terrible fate and to make peace with the women of Athens. The sexual role reversals in the Thesmophoria Zuzai can be interpreted as representing a broader political significance in the form of the worry ethos of an older generation who values Homer versus the intellectualism of the younger Athenians who valued the philosophical quibbling of a legalistic society. In the play, the chorus of women makes the point that they are better than their men because they have preserved their heritage, as represented by their weaving, the wool basket, and the umbrella, whereas the men have lost their spears and shields. The loss of the shield is expressed by the chorus metaphorically and contemptuously as the umbrella is thrown away, a riptide, a reference to the term ripsapsis, or a shield thrower, which was a derogatory word and whose use in Athens was considered to be actionable slander. And so the message behind the sexual role reversals is not that women are equal to men, but rather that the present generation of men are behaving no better than the women. The same message is delivered in Lysistrata, the stupidity of the war with Sparta, the criminal motives behind it, and the desire for peace are major themes in Aristophanes' earlier plays. Although there is almost no mention of the war in this play, the peace that Euripides very easily negotiates with the women at the end, at its end, after all his combative schemes have failed, could be interpreted as a pro-peace message. In addition, although current politics are largely avoided, there are allusions to the fear of an alliance with the Persians and of tyranny, behind which may lie suspicion that Alcibiades might return as a Persian-backed tyrant. But the fears that were in the hearts of many were echoed when the chorus called upon Athena, the sole keeper of their city, to come as the hater of tyrants. Their fears turned out to not be unfounded, though, because in less than two months, the Athenian democracy would see its first upheaval in the war. The unsuccessful Athenian mission to Alcibiades and Tissaphernes meant that the whole reason for the removal of the democratic constitution in Athens was now gone. But in spite of this, fearing a danger from a democratic backlash at their failure, the majority of the conspirators decided to press on anyways. Some, like Thrasybulus, dropped the plan on the grounds that Alcibiades was unable to fulfill his promises. But those who remained and never liked Alcibiades and decided to, quote, let Alcibiades alone, since he refused to join them, and besides, he was not a suitable man to come into oligarchy, end quote. But they had to publicly act as if they had dropped their intentions to instead go underground and become a conspiracy. Their plan was threefold. They needed to secure their position at Samos, to gain constitutional control of Athens, and to convert the governments of their allied cities to oligarchies. In order to achieve this, they strengthened their control over the Athenian army at Samos, referring to the middle-class hoplite farmers, and encouraged 300 of the most important Samians to organize an oligarchic coup on the island. Meanwhile, Pisander sailed for Athens, and five other delegates, including Theramenes, were sent out to establish oligarchies throughout the Aegean. The conspirators clearly believed that oligarchs in their allied cities were more likely to stay loyal to Athens even though Phrynichus had previously poured scorn on this idea. In one instance, the general Diotrephus, who also led the Dai in the massacre at Michalessus, as we described last episode, 
initially succeeded in abolishing the democracy and instituting oligarchic rule at Thassos. But when he returned to Samos, things at Thassos turned out to be contrary of what the conspirators had envisioned, as the oligarchs now in charge revolted. So the Thassians united with other oligarchs in exile, fortified their island against a possible Athenian attack, and called in a fleet led by the Corinthian general Timaleus. Thucydides says that they, like many of the other cities, were more interested in securing their freedom and alliance with the Spartans than in changes of constitution that resulted in an imposed oligarchy. The developments at Thassos supported Phrenicus's earlier contention that replacing democracies with oligarchies would not necessarily reconcile the subject states to Athenian rule. As Pisander sailed for Athens, he too along the way abolished democracies and set up oligarchies collecting some hoplites as his allies in the process. When he arrived back at Athens in late May of 411 BC, he found that in his absence, the oligarchical political clubs already had done an excellent job in preparing the ground for a coup. They had begun to publicly advertise their program for adopting what they called a different form of the democracy. According to Thucydides, this included, quote, that none should receive pay except those who were serving in the war that no more than 5,000 should have a share in the government, and that these should come from those who were best able to help the state in terms of money and their persons, end quote. In other words, it would be the middle and upper classes, meaning the hoplites and the knights, who would gain most from these constitutional reforms, and not the class of feats, which supplied the rowers for the Athenian fleet. At the same time, the political clubs secretly organized a series of assassinations of their main democratic opponents, which included Androcles, who was one of the leading democratic politicians and the man mainly responsible for the banishment of Alcibiades, as we discussed in episode 99. Evidently, the political clubs in Athens had not yet learned of the change in the situation with Alcibiades. Far more effective, though, was their creation of a climate of fear and distrust among the boule of 500 and the ecclesia. Nobody knew how many conspirators there were, and everyone was afraid to speak their mind to their neighbors for fear that they too were involved. And so everyone approached each other with suspicion so that despite the oligarch's small numbers, they gradually intimidated the boule and ecclesia into passing their preferred decisions. Eventually, these institutions discussed nothing that did not meet with the approval of the conspirators. Thucydides writes, quote, Not only did the speakers come from this group, but they decided beforehand what they were going to say. None of the rest of the citizens, being afraid and seeing how widespread the conspiracy appeared to be, any longer spoke in opposition to them. If anyone did speak against them, he was immediately killed in some convenient manner, and there was no search for the murderers, nor was there justice to be had against those who were suspected. The people remained motionless, being so thoroughly cowed that they thought themselves lucky to escape violence, even when they held their tongues, end quote. So this was the situation in Athens upon Pisander's arrival. He and his colleagues immediately summoned the ecclesia and Pythodorus proposed a motion that a commission, called a syngraphes, should be given full powers in order to prepare proposals for the change of the constitution and to present them to the people on a fixed day. Thucydides gives the number as 10, whereas Aristotle says that it was 30, as 20 additional men were to work in conjunction with the 10 pro-bouloi. Regardless, Clytophon concurred with the motion but moved that the committee should also investigate the ancient laws enacted by Cleisthenes, 
in order that they might have these before them and so be in a position to decide wisely. Ultimately, those favoring oligarchy persuaded the assembly to vote for these proposals. When the appointed day arrived for the constitution to be changed, probably in early June, the ecclesia met near the Temple of Poseidon on a hill called Colonus Hippias, a mile outside the city's walls. This location was probably chosen instead of the Peninx to discourage the Thetes who were unarmed from attending, while encouraging the attendance of the Hoplites, who were armed and who could defend themselves if the Spartan forces under King Aegis made a sortie down from Decalia. Furthermore, the mere act of moving to an unfamiliar meeting place would have been an unsettling sign in the eyes of the Athenians. According to Aristotle, the first proposal of the 30 commissioners made their own despotic rule easier by their ominous suspension of all the normal safeguards, including the ice and galei, or impeachments, the proskaleses, or summons, and most importantly, the graphe paranomoin, which was the right to prosecute someone for putting forward an illegal or unconstitutional motion. It was also stated that if anybody tried to impose a fine, make a summons, or bring a man to court for such actions, he himself would be put to death. Such a measure was not intended as a license for general free expression, but only as a legal protection for those planning the coup, who now guaranteed themselves immunity from prosecution for making revolutionary changes to the Constitution. However, Thucydides says that this was the only proposal that the commissioners put forward, as they had failed to produce a more detailed set of proposals necessary to reform the Constitution possibly reflecting an inability among themselves for an agreement on its desired form. So it fell to Pysander to step forward and to propose the conspirators' program. On the other hand, Aristotle attributes the proposals to the syngraphes as a whole, and not just Pysander, though both may very well be true if Pysander was one of the 30 and claimed to be speaking on behalf of all. Whatever the case, he proposed that the revenue of the state was not to be sent for any purpose other than the war and that pay for government service should be abolished, except for the nine archons and the pratanes, who would receive half a drachma or three obols each per day. The rest of the state's government was to be entrusted to the Athenians most able to serve with their bodies and their wealth while the war lasted. According to Thucydides, his central element was, quote, that there should be no holding of office and payment by the state as in the present constitution, that they should choose five men as presidents who would choose 100 others, and each of these 100 men would choose three more in addition to himself, and that these, being 400 in number and having gone into the chamber of the boule of 500, should govern with full powers to the best of their ability and should summon the 5,000 whenever they saw fit, end quote. This motion was passed, and it is indicative of how deeply the long war had shaken the Athenians, that the ecclesia, some members intimidated and others just demoralized, essentially voted itself out of existence and placed the safety of the state in the hands of a new provisional boule of 400, which it understood would soon give way to a larger body of 5,000. The 5,000 was to be filled with men of the hoplite census and these also would be the only citizens eligible to take part in the ecclesia. 400 was the size of Solon's original council, and presumably there was around 5,000 eligible hoplites at that time when he restructured the classes. A board of registrars was appointed to create the list of the 5,000, 
as well as a committee to draft a permanent constitution for the future. These were never completed, though, as they were only concessions made by the conspirators to cloak their agenda with promises of a more moderate future. Aristotle, in a discussion in his treatise titled Rhetoric, recalls that one of the probuloi, specifically the tragedian Sophocles, admitted that he voted for this because although it appeared like a bad thing to do, quote, there was nothing better to be done, end quote. And so, the Athenians generally likely shared that sentiment and thought this was a necessary, albeit supposedly temporary, curtail of their democratic powers. Payments had to be reduced in order to save money for fighting the war. And because of this, the government would only be able to be done by those who could afford to not get paid for it. Probably some men sincerely believed that democracy had gone too far and a more restrained form of constitution would be better, while others only wanted power for themselves and their friends. No doubt, different men supported or acquiesced in the oligarchy for different combinations of these reasons. While Thucydides represents the establishment of the oligarchy with conspiracy and intimidation, he also suggests that nobody tried very hard to preserve the democracy. That's likely because despite the way that the war had undermined the confidence in their democratic government, this vote was only made possible by the absence of the fleet, based now at Samos, as the sailors, who were generally poor, would have opposed any reforms that limited them, was the disenfranchisement of the lowest class, the Thetes, who rode the triremes, as they would not have been included in the 5,000. The notion of a hoplite democracy had been Cimon's ideal, and he was not alone. From this moment, many Athenians of anti-democratic tendencies began to make use of a new watchword. Patrios politia, or the ancestral constitution, that is a democracy limited to landowners who could afford to serve the state without pay, which they insisted was more traditionally Athenian than the upstart democracy that included the poor men who served as rowers in the fleet. The issue, which seemed to have been settled a century earlier with Cleisthenes' victory over Isagoras, was now once again at the forefront. Since Pisander did not fix a date when the new regime would take control, many must have expected that their ascension would be delayed until the conciliar year came to an end in about a month. But the conspirators moved swiftly, and shortly thereafter, a twofold coup was launched, and one at Samos, where the Athenian navy was based. Thanks to the current military climate, Aegis and the Spartan army were at Decalia, so all Athenians were constantly on the wall or in the ranks at their various military posts. According to Aristotle, on the 14th day of the Attic month of Thargelion, which is June 9th, the conspirators made sure those people who were not in on the coup were allowed to go home as usual, while orders were given to their accomplices to hang, at, to hang about at some distance from where the arms were stored. If there was any opposition, they were ordered to seize the arms and put it down. There were also some Andrians, Tenians, Cariestians, and Agenetans who had come with their own arms for this very purpose and who had received similar instructions. With these instructions in place, carrying concealed daggers and flanked by an additional 120 men who they employed as bodyguards, the 400 conspirators entered the Bulaterion, where the council met. They paid the current 500 counselors the balance of what was owed to them dismissed them, threatening to kill all of those who dissented, and established the oligarchy of the 400. Without any objections being made by the councillors or the people, the 400 in the council chamber then drew lots for their own pertanes and made prayers and sacrifices to the god upon entering office. 
The Britannias were a group who acted as a standing committee for both the council and the assembly during the 10th of the year, when it was their tribe's turn to preside, as we discussed in episode 44. The 400, as they would come to be known, made every effort to preserve a sense of continuity, normality, and legality, but few Athenians could have been deceived by this outward show. Thucydides makes the observation, quote, It was not surprising that the plot, carried out by so many able men, succeeded, although it was a tough undertaking. For it was difficult to deprive the Athenian demos of its liberty, especially since the tyrants had been expelled a hundred years before. End quote. For the first time, since the expulsion of the Pisistratids, the state had been captured by the means of force. According to Aristotle, a second committee of 100 under Aristomachus was appointed to work out the details of the constitution, probably in the days after Colonus, which is credible enough because they had only agreed upon its basic principles. The result was that on the 22nd day of the Attic month of Thargelion, which is June 17th, the 400s regime was formally inaugurated as they published two new constitutions, one for immediate use and the other for the future, probably because a split had opened up between the moderates who were seriously interested in a different kind of constitution and the extremists who only wanted to seize power for themselves. The immediate constitution was a formal authorization that conferred legal status to the 400 with powers to act in whatever way they thought expedient. The Athenians were obliged to accept whatever laws they might enact, and they were to remain in power as long as they wished. The extremists insisted that in the present crisis, things must be done their way. But to maintain the allegiance of the moderates and Democrats, they put forward a draft constitution for the future. It was fundamentally incomplete, as it mentioned nothing of the judiciary, but it did provide an unpaid council drawn from members of the 5,000 over the age of 300. The 5,000 was to be divided into four, with each set of 1,250 serving in rotation on behalf of the full council for one year. They were to sit once every five days, unless there was a need for an emergency meeting, such as war or sacred matters, or to hear heralds and embassies. Any member who did not attend the meeting was to be fined unless they were away on an approved leave of absence. All major officials were to be chosen from the council and office at the time, and they could serve only one year every four. This included the ten generals, the nine archons, the hero Nemon, or Amphiectonic Registrar, the Taxiarchs, the Hipparchs, the Phylarch, the commanders of garrisons, the ten treasurers of Athena and the other gods, the twenty Hellenotomnii, or Hellenic treasurers of non-sacred money, the ten hero poioi, or commissioners of sacrifices, and the ten superintendents of the mysteries. This was intended to thwart the rise of popular leaders, but none of these details really mattered anyways, as the oligarchs did not intend for this constitution ever to take effect, and it never would. Still, eight days after seizing power, the Constitutional Drafting Committee published these two new constitutions, claiming falsely that they had already been ratified by the 5,000. A later speech by Lysias, in defense of Polystratus, a man who was one of the 400 and one of the registrars, claims that no official list had been ratified, and therefore no assemblies of the 5,000 had ever been held. Yet most Athenians were too frightened, confused, or ignorant to question the propaganda of the 400. At the same time, the 400 had sent 10 envoys to the fleet at Samos to win acceptance for their new regime. 
fearing that failure to do so could lead to their overthrow. When the envoys made it to Delos, they received the news that the oligarchic coup in Samos was not as successful, and so they didn't continue on their journey. The conspirators always had their doubts about the acceptance of an oligarchy by the Thetes in the fleet at Samos. And so, as we mentioned before, through the agency of Pysander and the oligarchic supporters in the fleet, they had encouraged 300 Samians to seize power and establish an oligarchy. In this way, the conspirators hoped to cow any rebellious move by the sailors and further strengthen their hold on the government of Athens. However, the former Athenian demagogue Hyperbolus was living in Samos after his ostracism, which we discussed in episode 99, and he forewarned the Samian Democrats of the impending oligarchic coup. In retaliation, Hyperbolus was assassinated by the conspirators as a pledge of good faith to the Athenian oligarchs. Theopompus claims that Hyperbolus's body was stuffed into a wineskin and thrown into the sea, though this may be derived from a scene in a lost comedy. But such intimidation and violence was not as effective at Samos as it had been at Athens. The Samian Democrats appealed to the main Athenian supporters of democracy, the generals Harmonus, Leon, and Diomedon, as well as Thrasybulus, a triarch, or captain of a trireme, and Thrasylus, a hoplite. Upon hearing this, the Athenian officers went around their troops one by one to rally them to defend the Samian democracy. In particular, they received help from the crew of the Peralis, which was a special state trireme used on sacred embassies and official business, and was made up of entirely Athenians and had always been enemies of oligarchy. As a result, when the coup was launched, the Athenians and the Samian Democrats were able to rally against the Samian oligarchs. 30 of the 300 conspirators were put to death and three others were banished, while the other 267 were given amnesty. For the standards of their day, this showed remarkable self-restraint by the democratic Samians, an effort that was soon rewarded, as their surviving conspirators then swore to live together peacefully under a democratic Samos. Not yet knowing about the coup back in Athens, the Peralis was then dispatched to notify the city of its success against the oligarchs at Samos. But this news was not welcome to the 400 so the ship was seized and some of its crew was arrested, while the rest were put on a different ship and sent to keep guard around Euboea. However, one man, an especially zealous Democrat named Carius, was able to escape and return to the fleet at Samos with news of the oligarchic takeover and with exaggerated horror stories about the reign of terror in the city of Athens, saying that all were punished with lashes, that no one could say a word against the holders of power, that the wives and children of those in Samos were seized and shut up, and other inventions. Upon hearing this, the mass of Athenian troops flew into a rage and wanted to execute the chief authors of the oligarchical overthrow and those who had a role in it that were still in the fleet. This would have included most of their officers. However, they desisted from this idea thanks to Thrasybulus and Thrasylus, who stood in opposition to it, managed to prevent any violence, and brought about what amounted to an amnesty for those who had taken part in the oligarchic movement in its earliest phases. Following this, Thrasybulus and Thrasylus made everyone present swear loyalty to the democracy, especially those who had been involved with the oligarchs. The navy, stating that they had not revolted from the city, but that the city had revolted from them, resolved to stand by their democracy and to not have any relations with the oligarchs at Athens while still continuing to prosecute the war against Sparta. 
This amounted to a declaration of sovereignty, one that claimed legitimacy for themselves, as opposed to the oligarchic government at home. Newly sworn, the Democratic Navy deposed its generals and elected new ones who were reliably Democratic the entire time, including Thrasybulus and Thrasyllus. But oddly enough, not Leon and Diomedon, despite their earlier roles in preventing the overthrow of the Samian democracy. Even more interesting is their confidence in Thrasybulus, who was a strong supporter of Alcibiades and one of the original authors of the plan to seek Persian aid. So his selection reveals that the Athenians were able to realize that not all conspirators had been from the same cloth and that true friends of democracy walked among them. Almost nothing is known of Thrasybulus's background or early life. He was likely in his late 30s or early 40s at this point, and he was from a wealthy family as he held the office of Trierarch or captain of a trireme. As a strong supporter of Periclean democracy, he would consistently advocate several policies throughout his career in favor of Athenian imperialism and expansionism. He doesn't seem to be that convincing of a public speaker, though, despite Plutarch in his Life of Alcibiades noting that he had the loudest voice of the Athenians. Scholars are split over whether he had any role at all in the oligarchic plot. Some have suggested that he was one of its founding members, as he was willing to support a moderate oligarchy but was quickly alienated by the extreme actions taken by the conspirators, and so he switched sides. Others maintain that he was never involved in the plot, and that it was just slander attributed to him later. Whatever the case, by 411 BC at least, he was clearly established to some degree as a pro-democracy politician, so that the people felt comfortable in turning to him to lead their resistance to the oligarchic coup. Similarly, Almost nothing is known of Thrasyllus' background or early life. He likely wasn't from a family as wealthy as Thrasybulus, as he only served as a hoplite at Samos. Though, of course, he was at least from the middle class in order to afford the equipment necessary to serve as a hoplite. He also was probably a bit younger than Thrasybulus. But he too must have been clearly established as being pro-democratic through his role in organizing resistance in the oligarchic coup at Samos. These two men were elected for the first time in their careers as a strategos by the sailors and soldiers of the fleet. As newly elected generals, Thrasybulus and Thrasyllus then persuaded the whole population of Samos to take the very same oath of loyalty to the radical democracy and enmity to the 400 and the Spartans. At their first official meeting with the Athenian assembly at Samos, the generals encouraged them not to lose heart. Although Athens no longer would provide them with funds or counsel, they had the whole fleet at their disposal, and with it, they could compel the other cities in their empire to give them money, not the conspirators, just as if they had their base in Athens itself. In addition, Samos was a strong center for operations, and in the past, came very close to defeating the Athenians. Indeed, they were better suited with the fleet in their hands and could provide themselves with supplies better than the home government could. Therefore, they can carry on the war alone and inflict more harm on Athens from Samos than the oligarchs can inflict on them. Even if they did fail, their ships could carry them to safety, and so they were encouraged to push forward their war measures as actively as ever. At some point a little later in the summer, the Spartans were invited by Pharnabasis to send a fleet, which he would pay for, to the Hellespont. There will be more on that next episode, But the Athenians at Samos quickly perceived the danger in this new alliance and took steps to meet it. 
Because of this, Thrasybulus at last was able to persuade the Athenian assembly at Samos to vote for Alcibiades' recall with a grant of amnesty from prosecution and even to elect him as general because he believed still that only Alcibiades could help them bring Persian support away from the Peloponnesians to their side. So Thrasybulus sailed to the mainland and brought Alcibiades back to Samos. But the conditions of Alcibiades' repatriation were not what he had wished. Alcibiades was widely distrusted and hated by some. He had not been restored to Athens, but only to Samos. He would have liked to reappear in Athens at the head of a broad coalition in which he was an indispensable central figure. But instead, he was only one leader in one faction of moderate Democrats. Therefore, his success and his future depended on maintaining good relations with Thrasybulus and the Athenian fleet. And so, when he arrived at Samos, he immediately addressed the assembled Athenians. Alcibiades first complained bitterly about the circumstances of his exile. But the primary motive of his speech was to make the oligarchs at Athens afraid of him and to gain the respect and confidence with the fleet at Samos. In order to achieve these means, for the greater part of his speech, he boasted about his influence with Tissaphernes, which was now a lie, and incited their hopes for the future by saying that the satrap was eager to help them and to turn their backs on the Spartans. Upon hearing this speech, the Athenians began to believe him, and so they immediately elected him as a general, alongside Thrasybulus and the others, and gave him control of all of their affairs. Afterwards, Alcibiades sailed back to Tissaphernes with a detachment of ships. According to Plutarch, his purpose was to either bring the Persian fleet out of Spendis to their side, or to stop it from coming to the aid of the Peloponnesians. But it's likely that Alcibiades had long known that Tissaphernes never meant to bring the fleet at all, either to the Athenians or the Spartans. Thucydides, though, speculates that his real reason here was to flaunt his new position at Tissaphernes as a man who was no longer without a country and who was no longer dependent on him for his safety and survival, but the newly elected leader of the Athenian forces, and now a man to be reckoned with. In this way, he was hoping to leverage his newfound position with the Athenians to frighten Tissaphernes and to gain some real influence over him. Ultimately, he still was not able to convince the satrap to join the Athenians. But while he was at his court in Miletus, he received news of the turmoil at the Peloponnesian camp and likefully, joyfully returned back to Samos. There will be more on that next episode. According to Aristotle, the rule of the 400 at Athens lasted just under four months, from June to September of 411 BC. There were several major reasons for its fall. In addition to the failed oligarchic coup at Samos, the 400 suffered some serious setbacks in Athens' domestic and foreign affairs, which they had promised would do better under their guidance. They ruled the city by force and put to death some men whom they thought it was convenient to remove, and imprisoned and banished others. Thucydides notes that although some people expected the new government to undo the acts of the democracy, and specifically to recall the exiles, they did not, likely because they did not wish for the return of all exiles like Alcibiades. It should be noted that Thucydides himself at this time was still in exile, so perhaps he was expecting to be recalled and was bitter that he wasn't. More consequentially, the people were angry with what they viewed as treasonous intrigues with the Spartans by the 400. After Pisander's negotiations with Alcibiades and Tissaphernes had failed to win Persian support, 
The conspirators made it a major plank of their program to continue the war more vigorously than the democracy against the Spartans. But as soon as they seized power, they pursued a completely different policy, one that aimed to achieve a permanent peace that would leave Athens under firm oligarchic rule. According to Thucydides and Aristotle, they sent envoys to make approaches to the Spartan king Aegis at Decalia, saying that they wished to make peace and that it was more reasonable for him to come to an agreement with them rather than the untrustworthy democracy that no longer existed. They wished for peace in which each side would keep the territories that they now held. Aegis rebuffed the envoys, though, saying that, they, saying that there would be no peace unless they surrendered their maritime empire. Despite this, he believed that he could exploit the internal strife amongst the Athenians and either bring about their surrender, take Athens with a single attack, or at the very least, seize the long walls. So he sent for large reinforcements from the Peloponnese, and when they arrived, together they descended on Athens. However, he had made a serious error of judgment, which resulted in a number of Peloponnesian casualties as the Athenians sent out their cavalry and a number of hoplites and lightly armed troops against them. Athenian archers managed to shoot down any Peloponnesians who got too close to their walls. Eventually, he was forced to retreat back to Decalia, and after a few days, he sent his reinforcements back home. Most importantly, though, the 400 suffered from instability, because almost immediately, an internal split began to develop between the conspirators over the nature of the constitution that should replace the democracy. And again, it was Alcibiades with a very astute proposal who effectively split the ranks of the 400, thus fatally weakening them. After his return from Tissaphernes, envoys had arrived from Argos with offers of support to the Athenian Democrats at Samos. They were thanked by Alcibiades and dismissed with a request to return if called upon. Then the 10 envoys that had been sent from the 400 had finally arrived from Delos, and an assembly was held in which they attempted to allay Athenian fears about events in Athens. Although the people at first would not hear them and cried out for their execution, after some time and with great difficulty, they were calmed down and the envoys were allowed to speak. The envoys stressed that the change of government was meant to save the city, not betray it that the new government would strengthen Athens in the war against the Spartans, and that the 400 would give way to 5,000 who would get their chance to share in the government. They also informed them that their relatives were safe and undisturbed, contrary to what slanderous reports that they might have heard. These assurances did not quell the people's anger, though. In fact, it did the opposite. The people were roused so much that they proposed to sail at once for Piraeus and attack the oligarchs in Athens. It was primary Alcibiades, along with Thrasybulus, who calmed them and showed them the folly of this proposal, which would have sparked civil war and led to the immediate defeat of Athens. At the same time, it would have abandoned Ionia to the Peloponnesians. Thucydides says that no one else could have restrained the mob at that moment, except for Alcibiades. Here, as he so often does, he ascribes too much influence to the Athenian renegade, who was probably a key eyewitness source when he was writing his history. On the other hand, Plutarch says that Thrasybulus also took part in the restraint, as he shouted louder than anyone else and got them all to shut up. Regardless, Alcibiades then stepped up to speak and to answer the envoys' proposals. He insisted on the adoption of the program of Thrasybulus and the moderates and talks of reconciliation. 
saying that he was not against the 5,000 being the government of Athens, but insisted on the removal of the 400 and the restoration of the boule of 500 first. He also approved of any financial measures that supplied better pay for the troops and urged them to not give in to the enemy. So long as the city was safe, there was every chance of a reconciliation between the two groups. The mass of soldiers and sailors, no doubt, would have preferred a restoration of the full democracy, but their leaders still sought to establish a moderate regime. So the men consented to their wishes and went along with what Alcibiades had proposed to the envoys. When the envoys returned to the 400 at Athens, they only delivered part of Alcibiades' message, though. They told of his insistence that the Athenians collectively hold out and not yield to the Spartans, and of his hopes of reconciliation. But they suppressed his opposition to the continued rule of the 400 and his support of the 5,000. Thucydides says that the offer of reconciliation had the desired effect. Quote, Most of those who had a share in the oligarchy, who already had become discontented and would have been glad to get out of the business if it could be done safely, became far more determined to do so. They now organized themselves into groups and began to criticize how the state was being run, and they proclaimed that it was necessary for the 5,000 to exist in reality and not just in name, and that a fairer constitution should be established, end quote. Alcibiades' reply, by holding out the hope of a peaceful and safe compromise between the 400 in Athens and the forces at Samos, and by playing on their fears about the possible betrayal of Athens and Sparta, had destroyed the fragile unity of the 400. And very quickly, two factions emerged. One can be called the extreme oligarchs, which included Pisander, Phrynichus, and Antiphon. The first two men, like most of the 400, were merely self-seeking opportunists, acting out of personal ambition. Antiphon, though, worked behind the scenes. He seems to have been the first professional speechwriter in Athens, and he even earned Thucydides' admiration for his ability to help those who contested in both the law courts and the ecclesia. He was no fan of democracy, though, and there is every reason to believe that he sincerely thought it to be best for Athens to overthrow their government in favor of a narrow oligarchy. Generally speaking, the extremists held the view that sovereign power should be vested in the boule of 400, which should be unaccountable for its decisions and actions, and whose membership should be permanent. Ideally, they wanted the Assembly of 5,000 not to exist, but if it must, then it would exist only in name and not be involved in the decision-making process. Because the sharing of any power, even so small, was viewed to be unacceptable by them. In terms of foreign policy, they were willing to seek peace with Sparta on almost any terms, as we have seen, because it was more important that they could get back to the business of making money and consolidating their power. On the other hand, the dissident group can be called the moderates. Some were more inclined towards a more looser oligarchy, while others preferred a reformed democracy. Essentially, their preferred constitution fell somewhere on the spectrum in between an extreme oligarchy and radical democracy. The main leaders of the moderates were Aristocrates and Theramenes. Although little is known of him, Aristocrates was from an old established family and had been a general who was notable enough to have been a signer of the Peace of Nicias, as well as the object of a joke in Aristophanes' birds. Theramenes was the son of Hagnon, a prominent Athenian politician and general in Pericles' faction, who had founded Amphipolis and was also one of the signers of the Peace of Nicias. Nothing of his early life is known, though, as the first appearance on the historical record comes in the context of the oligarchic coup. Thucydides says that he was an able speaker 
and a man with ideas. Although Theramenes is lumped among the extreme oligarchs by Thucydides, his hostile portrayal of him may be based on the evidence of an ex-member of the 400 who fled after its fall. However, there is sufficient evidence from his later career that Theramenes was a proponent of a modern oligarchy in which sovereign power should be vested in the upper class and the hoplites in the form of an assembly of 5,000. For modern oligarchs, like Theramenes and Aristocrates, the assembly of 5,000 qualified Athenians was the crucial element in any reformed constitution, as it would share power with the boule of 400. In terms of foreign policy, they were willing to seek peace with Sparta, but only on terms that would preserve Athens' power, and they were not willing to sacrifice the empire and the fleet. By the end of the summer of 411 BC, the 400 had achieved almost none of their goals. Their attempt to make peace with Sparta failed, and their efforts at making the empire more secure by installing oligarchies only incited further rebellions. Instead of placing a friendly oligarchy on Samos, they managed to stir up an angry democracy that was barely restrained from sailing to attack them. They had alienated Thrasybulus, one of the founders of the movement, and turned him into a dangerous enemy, along with his friend Alcibiades. Both men now demanded the dissolution of the 400, and they were able to influence their moderate friends within the 400 of that same stance. Although the ambassadors had scrupulously avoided sharing the full details of Alcibiades' message, the news from Samos still alarmed the extremist leaders. Seeing the growing opposition to their rule, even among their own former supporters and in the fleet at Samos, the extremist leaders became even more desperate to make peace with the Spartans. So they redoubled their efforts, undeterred by Aegis's original rejection of their overtures, and kept sending envoys to him. And eventually, he advised them that instead they should be sent to Sparta with the same request. So they sent Antiphon, Phrynichus, and ten others to Sparta as quickly as possible with orders to arrange peace and surrender on whatever terms that were bearable. In addition, the 400 began to build up and fortify the promontory of Iatonii, which sat on the southern entrance to the harbor of Piraeus and dominated traffic in and out. They ostensibly did this in order to protect the harbor against an attack from the fleet at Samos. They joined these new fortifications to existing walls in order to form a defensible position against attacks both from land and sea. And then the extremists moved most of the city's grain supply into a large warehouse at Iatonii. As the new walls continued to rise, Theramenes protested strongly against them with increasing openness, vigor, and courage, even though opposition to the extremists was a very risky tactic that could have gotten him assassinated. He argued that far from keeping out the Democrats at Samos, its real purpose was to let in the Spartan fleet and army, which was coming in the direction of the Piraeus. No doubt, which is why there currently were envoys at Sparta now. He accused the extremists that if the 400 could not stay in power and their own lives were to be at risk from a restored democracy, they would betray the city, lead in the enemy, give up their walls and the fleet, and make any agreement with no regard for the fate of the city in order to save themselves. Although the moderates had been initially cautious, as enemies of the regime had been executed before, it was this suspicion of possible treachery and a betrayal of Athens to the enemy that emboldened and led to the retaliation, and several key events took place. First, a Peloponnesian fleet of 42 ships, under the command of a Spartiate named Hagasandros, was moving slowly up the coast of the Peloponnese, 
ostensibly dispatched to assist anti-Athenian forces on Euboea. But Theramenes warned the people that they were planning to seize the fortifications on Piraeus in collaboration with the extremists. Second, the leader of the extremists, Phrynichus, was assassinated in the Agora right outside the Bulletarian by an unnamed person who was apparently acting on orders from conspirators, likely the moderates, who were high in the ranks of the 400. Thucydides says that he used a dagger and was one of the Parapoloi, a special operations type of Athenian military unit. The assassin escaped, but, it, but his accomplice, an unnamed Argive, was captured and tortured by the 400. Still, under torture, the prisoner refused to state the name of his employer, and so the extremists were unable to take effective action in this case. At the same time, the Peloponnesian fleet was spotted at Epidaurus and then at Agina, which was seen as a logical stopping point on their approach to Piraeus. So Theramenes, Aristocrates, and the rest of their moderate faction now decided to act even more boldly. They held an emergency meeting with their supporters, in which they determined that the port of Athens now demanded action. And so the hoplites were building its fortification, mutinied against Alexicles, an extremist general and supporter of the 400 who was in charge of the operation. This mutiny was done under the leadership of Aristocrates and a man named Hermon, who was commander of the Parapoldoi in Munichia, a hill in Piraeus. Alexicles was seized and confined as a prisoner in a local house. As soon as news of their revolt reached the 400, who had just happened to be sitting in the council chamber, the extremist leaders demanded immediate action and made a number of threats against Theramenes and his faction. But much to their surprise, though, Theramenes volunteered to lead a force of cavalry to rescue Alexicles. Uncertain of his role in the affair and unwilling to force an open rift at such a critical moment, the leaders of the extremists acquiesced and Theramenes set out to Piraeus, sharing his command with one other unnamed moderate and one extremist named Aristarchus. At the same time, there was much panic and confusion. Those at Athens thought that the Piraeus had been taken over and that the prisoner had been put to death, while those in Piraeus expected at any moment to be attacked by the extremists. And so the younger men began to arm themselves in case civil war broke out, until the older men were able to stop them. A man named Thucydides, not the historian, but a proxenus from Pharsalia in Thessaly, threw himself between the rival factions and appealed to them not to give in to civil war when the enemy was nearby waiting. Reason prevailed, and both sides did not attack each other. But when Theramenes and his force finally arrived at Piraeus, Aristarchus, in a rage, exhorted the men to attack the hoplites who had seized Alexicles. What followed, though, was more of a comic performance than anything. Theramenes feigned rage as well, but when asked by the hoplites whether he thought that the fortification on Iatonia was a good idea, he responded that if they wanted to pull it down, he thought that would be good too. So the hoplites and a number of people in the Piraeus began to destroy the wall, calling for help from all those that wanted the 5,000 to govern instead of the 400. It's likely that this suggested call was instigated by Theramenes and his fellow moderates who wanted the 500 to govern because those hoplites tearing down the fortification might well have preferred a return to the radical democracy. In any case, they followed the lead of Theramenes and his colleagues, satisfied in bringing down the oligarchy of 400 and preventing their treason. The moderate leaders who were directing this activity, though, did not want it to lead to a civil war, as their goal was to make the extremists yield, not fight. 
So on the next day, while the 400 met to discuss how they were going to handle the situation, after their army finished leveling the fortifications, the hoplites released Alexicles and went down to the theater of Dionysus, close to Munichia, and held an assembly. There, they decided to march to Athens collectively. And so they set forth until they halted in the Anaceum, a temple of the Dioscuri in Athens, where they were met by some delegates of the 400 who tried to placate them. The delegates promised the hoplites that the 400 would publish the names of the 5,000 and that in the future, membership of the Boule would be recruited from this number on a rotational basis, as we mentioned. They urged the hoplites not to endanger the state and everyone in it by starting a civil war. After a great many had spoken on the matter, the army was calmed and they agreed to hold another assembly on a fixed day in the near future at another theater of Dionysus this one being the famous one on the southern slopes of the Acropolis, in order to settle their problems and to discuss the restoration of peace between the two factions. The extremists, though, were not sincere in their offer, but they needed to gain time for the Spartans to arrive and save them. However, several days later, the sighting of the 42 Peloponnesian ships sailing from Megara along the coast of Salamis prevented the assembly from being held on the appointed day, and this provoked great panic by again renewing the fears of the moderates that the 400 were about to betray Athens. So the Athenians immediately ran down in mass to the Piraeus. Some went aboard ships already afloat, while others launched fresh ones, or ran to defend the walls in the mouth of the harbor. Although we cannot be sure if Hegesandridas had been given orders to attack the Piraeus, when he sailed by, he found that the fortifications had been destroyed, and the port was well defended. So he continued on. His fleet rounded Cape Sunium and anchored between Thoricos and Prassii before sailing on to Oropus near Euboea. The Athenians, with revolution in the city, were unwilling to lose such an important possession, as Euboea meant everything to them now that they were shut out from Attica. So in September 411 BC, they put a fleet out to sea hastily and with untrained crews under the moderate general Thymocares. Together with the ships at Euboea, he commanded 36 vessels. The 42 Peloponnesian ships put out from Europus, a distance of about seven miles from Eretria. And upon seeing this, Thymocares ordered his troops to man their vessels and to engage them. But instead of being by their ships, the men had gone away to purchase provisions for their dinner. As we have mentioned before, Greek soldiers and sailors at this time were expected to purchase their food from local markets with their own money since triremes had no room or facilities for storing or preparing food. But in this case, the Athenians were very far away in the outskirts of Eretria, because as part of the plot, the Eretrians made sure that there would be nothing on sale in the Agora, near the harbor, in order to slow down their ability to respond. A signal was also raised in Eretria to give them notice in Oropus when to put to sea, and so the Athenians were forced to run through the city to make it to their ships. When they finally put out, they were so poorly prepared. In the so-called Battle of Eretria, the two sides engaged near the Eretrian harbor. To their credit, the hastily manned Athenians fought hard and held their own for some time, but they had little to no chance of surviving the contest, let alone winning it. Soon the resistance was broken. The Peloponnesians managed to capture 22 of the 36 Athenian ships and killed or captured their crews. Those that managed to escape fled to the shoreline. When they disembarked, some tried to take refuge in the city of Eretria, 
which they presumed would be friendly to them. But to their surprise, they were butchered by its inhabitants. Those who had chosen to flee to an Athenian fort at Orium in Eretrian territory were the only survivors. The Peloponnesians then set up a victory trophy, and shortly thereafter, they incited a general revolt of the whole island, except for the city of Histiaea, which the Athenians still held, and began to settle oligarchies in the island's city-states. When the news of what had happened in Euboea reached Athens, a general panic ensued, such as they had never known before, even worse than when they found out about the Sicilian disaster. Athens now was cut off from the resources of both Attica and Euboea. The 400 had very little other ships or experienced men to man them. They were in conflict among themselves and on the verge of civil war. The fleet at Samos was in revolt and could attack the Piraeus at any time if they so wished. Because of this, many feared that the Spartans easily would be able to swoop in and take the city. However, the Spartans once again chose not to take advantage of an Athenian vulnerability and did not sail on the Piraeus here while Aegis attacked on land from Decalia. As Thucydides points out, quote, Here, as on so many other occasions, the Spartans proved the most convenient people in the world for the Athenians to be at war with, end quote. But it's likely that the Peloponnesians might not necessarily have benefited had they acted more boldly. A Spartan blockade or siege of Piraeus would surely have brought an attack by the Athenian fleet at Samos, which would easily have destroyed the much smaller force under Hegesanderdos. Therefore, the Spartans had good reason not to risk an attack on the Athenian port. Still, the Athenians, of course, did not know what to expect, so they took the necessary steps to defend themselves. Ultimately, the revolt of Euboea and the Athenian response to it brought about the downfall of the extremist oligarchs, as the moderates now had their chance to show that they could govern Athens better in a time of crisis. Under the guidance of Theramenes and the moderates, the Athenians manned 20 ships in order to protect the harbor as best they could in case of a Spartan attack, while they immediately called an ad hoc assembly on the Pnyx, their first there since the oligarchic coup. This sent a clear message that the current rule of the 400 had come to an end. This was followed by a series of further meetings in which the 400 were formally deposed and they were to be replaced by a government under Theramenes based on the 5,000. Finally, there was a vote for the recall of some of Athens' exiles, including Alcibiades, passed on a motion by Critias, a political ally of his. In fact, Critias was a close associate of Socrates and was Plato's great uncle. We will run into him again in a future episode. Alcibiades' subsequent actions, though, suggest that the actual restoration decree did not provide for a complete pardon. Since it confirmed the fleet's election of him as general, it must have abolished his status as an outlaw, as well as the threat of penalty that went along with it. But he likely would have had to come back to Athens in order to obtain full reconciliation. Although his chief enemies now were either dead or fallen from power, and his friends were in control, it still would be four years until Alcibiades stepped foot on Attic soil. According to Plutarch, quote, he thought that he should not come back with empty hands and without achievements because of the pity and the grace of the masses, but instead full of glory, end quote. More likely, though, he delayed his reappearance out of a lasting fear of prosecution and waited until he could come back as a glorious general. It should also be noted that Thucydides was presumably not recalled. However, the new moderate regime of the 5,000 was by no means secure in its position. The situation was still so unsettled 
that many of the extremists felt secure enough to remain and may even have hoped to regain power at some point in the future. And so the moderates had to proceed cautiously because despite their leading role in unseating the 400, many of them still had been members of that body. They needed not only to guard against attempts by the extremists to restore their power or betray the state, but also to separate themselves in the public's mind from the people who they used to call their colleagues. One of their first official actions, though, was an odd one, as the assembly voted in favor of a decree against the corpse of Phrynichus, ordering that the dead man shall be charged with a treason. According to Lycurgus in his law speech against Leocrates, the prosecutor was the aforementioned Critias. When the dead Phrynichus was subsequently convicted, his bones were exhumed and removed beyond the borders of Attica. His property confiscated, and the verdict and penalties for his crime were inscribed on a bronze stele. Then the two assassins who had killed Phrynichus were publicly honored. Even so, both Aristarchus and Alexicles spoke in favor of Phrynichus, suggesting that both extremists still felt sufficiently safe to defend their associate in public. But then the moderates began to take legal actions against living extremists. As a result, Pisander and several others immediately fled to Aegis at Decalia before any sentence could be imposed. But a lawsuit was brought against Archiptolemus, Onomocles, and Antiphon, who, were, who all were charged with treason for negotiating with the Spartans to the detriment of the state. Onomocles seems to have eventually fled before the trial, but Archiptolemus and Antiphon stayed to defend themselves as they had seen that several other members of the 400 had previously gotten off with just a fine or were acquitted. But not these two oligarchs, as they were sentenced to death and executed with the same dishonors that were imposed on Phrynichus. They also had bronze stelae erected near that of Phrynichus, and according to Plutarch, stones were placed on the former sites of their houses with the inscription, Land of Arctolemus and Antiphon, the two traitors. Their fate must have convinced all remaining extremists to flee, and their evacuation from Athens put an end to any further threat of treasonous plots from within the city. One extremist in particular, the former general Aristarchus, hastily took some archers and marched them to Oenoi, a fort of the Athenians on the Attic-Boeotian border. At that moment, it was being besieged by the Corinthians and the Boeotians. But Aristarchus deceived the Athenian garrison in the fort by telling them that Athens had settled with Sparta and that one of the terms was for them to surrender the fort to the Boeotians. The garrison believed their general, and so they evacuated the fort under a fake truce. So in this way, Aristarchus used treason to secure his safety, and the Boeotians were able to gain possession of Oenoi. However, this intermediate constitution was abandoned after eight months, September 411 BC to June 410 BC, and full democracy was then restored. Not a great deal is known about this government due to the lack of literary sources, and what few facts are known are subject to disputed scholarly interpretations. Some have suggested that the future constitution that we mentioned earlier was now put into effect. But what little evidence we have does not support that. According to Thucydides, once again, quote, the Athenians had meetings of the ecclesia, including an immediate one, which was summoned then for the first time to the Peninx, as had been customary in the past in which they deposed the 400 and voted to hand over the government to the 5,000 and as many as were able to provide their own weapons. They also voted that no one, on pain of being cursed, was to receive pay for any office. Other regular meetings also took place in which they voted for lawgivers, or nomothetai, and other arrangements for drawing up the constitution. 
end quote. It is not even known if this regime consisted of 5,000 enfranchised citizens. The propaganda of the original conspirators mentioned 5,000 as the maximum number of citizens who should be allowed to participate in government. But this is contradicted by Thucydides and Aristotle, who states that 5,000 was to be the minimum number. Many modern historians believe the final number was around 9,000, which was quoted in a speech by Lysias in defense of Polystratus, one of the original members of the 400. But even this information, used in a politically sensitive trial, has to be treated with caution. So it's probably that the figure of 5,000 was more symbolic than it was real. The major disagreement between scholars, though, concerns whether the Thetes were excluded from all political rights or were forbidden from holding public office, but were allowed to attend the ecclesia and serve in the Heliai, the law courts, as in the past before the oligarchic coup. Most scholars believe that under this regime, it was the former, so that they limited political rights to the hoplite class and above, effectively cutting out the Thetes who manned the triremes. The majority of Thucydides' evidence strongly supports this view as well. It also seems probable that the reconstituted boule of 500, with more power than its democratic counterpart, was elected and not chosen by lot. A speech of Andocades, called On the Mysteries, includes a decree of the newly restored democracy in 410 BC, in which a boule of 500 chosen by lot is said to exist at that time. This unusual description is presumably used to emphasize its difference from the recent one of the 5,000. Essentially, it seems then that this regime combined the democratic principle that power should reside in the ecclesia rather than in the boule, with the oligarchic principle that the citizen body should be limited to those able to serve with their wealth and their bodies. Both Aristotle and Thucydides had high praise for this regime. In particular, Aristotle remarks that the Athenians, quote, seem to have been governed well at that time, for a war was in progress, and the state was in the hands of those bearing arms. End quote. Thucydides, who was frequently impatient with democracy, praised the government of the 5,000 as a laudable blending of democratic and oligarchic elements. He remarks, quote, It was during the first period of this constitution, at least in my lifetime, that the Athenians appear to have enjoyed their best government than ever before. For there took place a moderate blending of the few and the many, and it was this that first brought about a recovery of the state from its desperate situation, end quote. It is tempting to see Thucydides' description of the moderate constitution as further support for the belief that it was only those of hoplite census and above who had full political rights. The oligarchic element in the constitution was the establishment of a property qualification was the establishment of a property qualification as the prerequisite for political participation. And the democratic element was that sovereignty was vested in the assembly and not the boule. There was one very good reason why this moderate constitution was designed to fail, though. Athens' rise to superpower status had been achieved by the strength of its navy and by the class that manned the triremes. Therefore, the prosperity and ultimate safety of Athens depended upon the feats whose demand for full political rights to reflect their importance to the state had been met by the reforms of Ephialtes and Pericles, as we saw in episode 41. Although the new regime was still committed to waging war against Sparta, their hope for military success lay with the Thetes in the navy at Samos, who had already restored the democracy in exile. And so, it was never a long-term possibility that the Thetes would accept the removal of their political rights, especially during a war that was predominantly naval. 
It was their soul-crushing defeat in Sicily and their morale-sapping campaigns against the Persian-backed Spartans in the eastern Aegean that had led to the Athenians' temporary loss of confidence in their democracy. But a string of naval victories did much to reestablish the power of the Athenian feats, and by extension, the Athenian democracy. And this will be the topic of the next episode. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 104, The Democratic Empire Strikes Back. 